Mike. Lauren. Mike, have you ever considered just totally deleting your Facebook? Many, many times. You? Have you done it? Uh, Once. But then it turns out that I didn't actually delete it because you try to delete it and they won't let you. Yeah, I've thought about it, but then I would still use other apps like WhatsApp and Instagram. So it's just Facebook kind of owns us. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Should they, though? I think we can talk about that today. All right, let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I'm Michael Calori, a senior editor at Wired. We're also joined in studio, in person, in the flesh, by Wired politics writer Galad Edelman. Galad, welcome to the Bay and welcome to the Wired studio. Thanks for having me. Wow, we all sound so good, even though we're all wearing masks. <laughs> uh, well, we're all vaccinated, so so that's really good. Hell yeah. I'm confident that we're going to be okay today, and we're, we're doing this for the sake of bringing our listeners a great show. So today we're talking about Facebook, which is why we brought Galad into studio. Uh, it's been an eventful month for the company. You probably will remember when Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp crashed for a few hours last week, and it turned out that wasn't even Facebook's biggest problem. Last month, the Wall Street Journal started publishing a series about some of the harms Facebook purportedly causes. This is based on documents shared by a whistleblower named Francis Haugen. So these were thousands of pages of internal Facebook documents that showed that Facebook had been doing research on how its services affect the well-being of its users. And then, according to Haugen, Facebook would often choose to prioritize its own business interests over the safety and mental health of its users. So last week, Haugen testified before the Senate and has since agreed to meet with Facebook's oversight board. All right, Galad, first, take us through the past several weeks. And then later in the show, we're going to talk about whether this will will change anything. But first, talk about Haugen's testimony. Sure. So, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot to talk about. The, the document leak that led to this Wall Street Journal series, it covers a really wide range of topics. And the articles that have been published so far similarly cover a really wide range of topics. So it's kind of hard to boil it all down to one or two uh, headlines about what the documents reveal. I think for that reason, uh, what the senators chose to focus on when Francis Haugen, the whistleblower, testified was mainly these findings about uh, Instagram's effect on teenagers' mental health. And the narrative around that is that internal documents, research documents from Facebook, show that Instagram is toxic for teens and that Facebook knew all along and have lied about it. And the senators at the hearing, most notably Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal, just really raked, uh, have been raking Facebook over the coals for this. Um, the interesting thing is that of all the documents that Frances exposed as part of her her choice to become a whistleblower, these ones are, are, are among the weakest, actually. And I, I wrote this at the time. See, it, it's not like it's a new theory to say that Instagram is bad for teenagers' mental health, right? That that idea, and not just Instagram, right? Social media in general, that idea has been out there for a long time. And it's always been kind of controversial because it's hard to prove. And a lot of the people making the argument have had a hard time actually proving it. It would be amazing if we could see uh, research conducted by Facebook that tried to match up people's mental health outcomes and match that really against their their actual usage of the platforms. But that's not what the spiciest documents in this 
a hearing actually showed. They were just surveys where Facebook would, you know, essentially, I'm slightly oversimplifying, but it was kind of like focus groups, you know, the, the one that's gotten the most attention, they asked something like 150 teenage girls, hey, how does Instagram make you feel? And so right off the bat, we know to be a little skeptical of something like that, where it's a really small sample size. You know, teenagers read the news, they're aware of the narrative that Instagram is bad for them. So, you know, there's some question about what kind of value. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Like, what do they what do they think they're supposed to say? Mm-hmm. But then the other thing is that even in even in these these surveys, they found that actually most teens say that Instagram makes their mental health better. And it was only a small subset who reported problems. So this is a long way of saying we still don't really know what the effect of social media is. Like, you wouldn't trust Facebook's research saying it's great for teens. We don't really know what to make of this research that's sort of ambiguous. Um, and have we I, seen the whole cache of documents to date? Or if we're only seeing what Haugen has revealed and has been reported by the journal? So in the case of the mental health stuff, the journal public publicly shared something like five or six documents that they were basing their reporting on. And based on those documents, there's nothing in there that really advances the ball in terms of you know, showing a causal connection between Instagram use and teenager mental health. I should say, I'm very sympathetic to this hypothesis. Like, I, like many people, kind of assume that Instagram use is probably bad for teenagers. You know, it seems mm-hmm. very plausible to me. I, I don't and use Instagram myself. Yeah, sure. I mean, like, my my social media drug of choice, in used advisedly, I guess, or in quotes, <laughs> is Twitter. Mm-hmm. And it's bad for me. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm ready to believe that Instagram is bad for other people. I just right. want listeners to understand that the evidence is not really so clear cut on that one. So if you don't think that the Instagram stuff that we saw is that interesting, what should we be focusing on? There's some genuinely wow materials in here that the Wall Street Journal uh, has reported on. Probably the the thing that stands out the most to me and that interestingly hasn't gotten that much attention is they're reporting on Facebook's under-enforcement of its uh, safety and integrity policies outside of the US and Europe. Mm-hmm. This this stuff has been really eye-opening. There's a statistic in there in one of the articles. I might get the exact numbers wrong, but it's something like 90% of Facebook's resources toward platform safety and integrity go to North America, leaving 10% for the rest of the world, even though only like 10% of Facebook users are in North America. So something, something like that, just a really huge skew. Why is and, that? Great question. I mean, you might think they would want to devote more resources in more volatile parts of the world. We all know that in Myanmar, the government there very brazenly used Facebook to facilitate ethnic cleansing and genocide. And uh, Facebook's still kind of reckoning with their culpability in that. And these I- internal documents show that there are lots of such examples. I mean, there's there's really eye-popping stuff about Facebook researchers saying that they don't, admitting that they don't have, uh, you know, language classifiers for a lot of dialects of Arabic. Arabic is the third most spoken language by Facebook users. And when I say Facebook, I mean, you know, the family of apps that they own. So Arabic is this huge market. By the way, a lot of uh, Arabic-speaking countries are pretty volatile parts of the world. And Facebook's own internal documents reveal that they are just like way inadequately uh, resourced to keep the platforms safe uh, from, you know, terrorist content, abuse, harassment, all kinds of stuff, incitement. 
in these parts of the world. Similarly, in Ethiopia, uh, Francis Hagen testified really powerfully that in Ethiopia, many languages are spoken and Facebook literally doesn't have models for all of them. And for a company that relies so heavily on their AI, their language classifiers as this amazing tool uh, that's going to you know, keep everything clean and safe, that's a real big problem. So to your question of why, you have to ask them. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think it's clear that they devote only so much money, only so much person power to integrity, to safety. And they appear to allocate those resources not based on where there's the greatest level of risk to human beings, but on where there's the greatest uh, potential for bad PR and backlash, right? So when Facebook, I'm part of this, you know, like I'm, when I talk about reporters who cover Facebook, we just get more revved up when it's about the United States, Mm -hmm. when it's about, oh, the Trump campaign or, you know, some other impact on U.S. domestic affairs. This mm-hmm. is a persistent bias right. with U.S. media coverage. Or vaccine misinformation. The, great, great or, example, mm-hmm. vaccine stuff. Yeah, it's like we care about what's happening within our own borders. And this is true not just of tech coverage, right? This is true of, this is like a persistent issue with- Right, with, there's a Western bias. Yeah, mm-hmm. so part of it's natural. I mean, you, everyone kind of cares more what's going on close to home, but so, so all that is to say that that's the stuff that really blows up in Facebook's face. And you kind of see it playing out with what I was just saying, right? Where the senators get up there and they're mad as hell about Instagram and teens, where that evidence is kind of meh, doesn't necessarily move the ball forward so much. Meanwhile, there's like really damning stuff about- how Facebook has expanded uh, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger into all these developing countries, into these markets where people have way lower uh, like news and tech literacy, where governments are uh, you know less democratic, more authoritarian. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of bad actors, malicious actors exploiting these platforms, and it's pretty clear that Facebook doesn't say okay. Let's make sure that we have all the resources we need uh, for safety and integrity before we go in, right? Mm-hmm. That would be nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That might be a thing you would do. But let me ask you about, <laughs> l- let's, let's talk quickly about regulation and whether or not any kind of regulation would actually solve that for countries outside of U.S. borders, right? Because Facebook has long said that it's in favor of some sort of regulation, which seems like part of an effort for them to insert themselves and have some say over how it's regulated rather than leaving it all to big government, right? Totally. This is something we saw with the video game industry in the mid-90s when they created their own coalition to introduce like video game ratings. And this was after the congressional hearings in 1993. And so Facebook obviously doesn't, uh, they want to head off some threats of too much government interference. Um, how, first of all, how true are Facebook statements? And like, yeah, sure, we're all in favor of regulation. And two, even if Facebook was regulated, would it solves some of the issues that you're just describing. Great question. This is this is always the place where these conversations sort of start, you know, scraping the coral reef um, because it's just really hard to figure out what exact kinds of government regulation. There's there's two there's two hard questions, right? There's the question of what would work. There's the question of what is possible, right? What what could what is politically plausible? What's legally possible? As far as the international context, if you think about the problem as one of essentially inadequate resources, right? Facebook not choo- Facebook choosing not to invest what it would take to offer a you know a, a properly safe 
set of products in markets like Ethiopia and Afghanistan and Myanmar and India and so on, you'd have to think, okay, well, what would, for, what would make them do that? The most obvious answer would be liability. Um, this is sort of a constant debate when it comes to tech policy. Uh, I think we've talked about it on the show before that Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act protects platforms, including Facebook, from liability over the contents of things that users post. And some countries have their own versions of Section 230-esque laws. Other countries don't. But ultimately, if you're suing an American company, you've got to get an American court to enforce that judgment. So Section 230 does extend in some fashion, even in jurisdictions where, where it's, not, it's not on the books. So you might ask, is there some way to impose liability for you know things like being a, a chosen tool for perpetrators of genocide in Myanmar, for example? Even then, you know, we've never, it would be, we'd be in totally uncharted waters because we've never, no one knows what the legal theory would be you know, and and what how you would prove Facebook's culpability in certain we don't we don't know what the legal responsibilities of a social media network or a messaging platform really are. It's all it's all legally uncharted waters. Parenthetical, one reason it's legally uncharted waters is because of Section 230. Section mm -hmm. 230 sort of closed the door. As I wrote in my cover story for the <laughs> some issue of Wired this year, <laughs> someone add it to the plug. show notes, please. Um, Section 230 kind of blocked this area of law from growing up and going through puberty and developing. So we don't really know what the legal theories would be to hold companies like Facebook culpable. So that's one avenue, but I don't really know what it would look like. One more thing, of course, is that you, you can't have this conversation without talking about antitrust and this idea that compounding the harm is that you've got one company in control of so many crucial platforms. And we saw this when Facebook went down last week where it was like, oh, it wasn't just Facebook went down, WhatsApp went down, which is the like practically the architecture of internet online communication or just communication period for, for many people in countries outside the US. So a lot of people would argue that it would help this issue if one company's choices weren't so consequential here. Mm. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how this recent Facebook controversy compares to earlier Facebook scandals and whether or not anything will actually change. Welcome back. So Facebook has been in the hot seat before. Uh, multiple executives, including Mark Zuckerberg himself, have testified before Congress. Uh, yet not much has changed in recent years. But Haugen's allegations are sweeping and, and paint an even more damning picture of Facebook than some of the previous leaks or scandals. Galad, you recently wrote a story for Wired.com about how this whistleblower's leaks could be different. How so and how does this differ from, say, the scandal around Cambridge Analytica? This, I, I want to push back on something that you said. And this is something that you hear a lot, that nothing changes at Facebook. I don't think that's true. I think a lot changes at Facebook. I think a lot has changed at Facebook. And these documents, some of them actually reflect that. And this is kind of why people at Facebook are tearing their hair out, because the, the, the documents that have been revealed, it's a mixed bag. Because on the one hand, you see examples of, of really bad stuff or people people pointing out the flaws. But the people pointing out the flaws, these are Facebook employees, and a lot of them are pointing them out for the purposes of fixing them. And you see some of that in these documents as well, where, you know, there might be a really damning 
uh, internal doc from 2019 about how the algorithm, because of how it amplifies reshares, for example, that inadvertently ended up boosting the bad stuff. And one reason for that is that it was giving too much weight to reshares and to certain kinds of reactions. But over time, you also see the researchers saying, okay, so here's how we're changing the weighting to address those problems. So that's a micro version of this point, which is that Facebook does respond to these controversies and it does change. It was very, think back to way long ago, like 2019, (laughs) Facebook didn't do any fact checking. I mean, or or like Facebook did very little uh, intervention for material that was false, right? That, That was really like a pandemic an election, holy crap, we have to start doing things that we previously were uncomfortable with because we didn't want to be the arbiters of truth, which was a comment that Mark Zuckerberg made in fall 2019. So they change a lot in response to events and response to shitstorms like the one they're currently uh, standing under. So the problem is that this seems to be the only way they change, which is kicking and screaming to mix metaphors when they already have egg on their face and when bad stuff has already happened. So... I guess a different way to put the question would be, will the way that they change, change? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And that's that's been the thing that I've been thinking about, because like the clear takeaway from Haugen's testimony and the thing that we've that has been made very clear is that there is a lot of bad stuff happening on the platform and Facebook does not have the resources to spot it and to keep it out of the out of the public view. Right. So. What are the answers? Better automated tools, better AI tools to recognize misinformation, uh, to recognize abuse, things like that, or more humans to spot those things. So more human intervention or more machine intervention. Um, That seems like it's a problem of scale and it's a problem of building the technology. So how do they respond? What do they do? So uh, you're right about that. And I've written, I wrote a piece last year saying, stop saying Facebook is too big to moderate. Right. Because that's that's their excuse for a lot of stuff. It's like, look, we've got billions of users. We we can't moderate all this stuff. It's like, okay, well, maybe you also don't get to have $40 billion in profits or $20 billion in profits or whatever it is, right? The companies in many regulated industries have higher revenues than Facebook, but lower profits. Why would that be? Oh, because they actually have to spend money <laughs> to make sure that like your car doesn't blow up. <laughs> yeah. So So that's one issue. But I want to emphasize something that Frances has said, and she said it in her testimony and in her 60 Minutes interview, and she's been really clear on this point, which is she argues pretty compellingly that thinking about how to react to bad stuff and get it off is the wrong framework, that the much Mm -hmm. more promising direction to go is what she calls content agnostic changes to the algorithm design. So this is a familiar idea, right? It's that the, the, the root problem with not just Facebook, but other recommender-based social platforms is that they're designed around the theory that, well, whatever people engage with or spend time on, that shows that they value it. So just design it, and it's good for us. Mm-hmm. So it helps us sell more ads because they're, they're spending more time on our platform. So let's just design around that goal. And then the problem is choices you make to design around that objective lead to let's say, inadvertent bad consequences like, oh, it turns out this design change we made to increase people's interactions on the site was great for misinformation or it was great for uh, for hate speech or it really incentivized uh, negative posts or angry posts. So 
you could make different choices. You could turn down the the bump that certain signals get, like reshares and, you know, or like the angry face emoji. Uh, one, another thing Francis has talked about is like limiting how many comments and invites people can make because there's a small group of super users on Facebook who there are people who comment more than 100 times a day. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And there are people who just <laughs> spam out group invites or page invites. Yeah. So so there's things that you could do that don't require the platform to take any opinion on any piece of content. Right. That's that's the beauty of it. They don't have to say this is true, this is false, uh, or like this is, you know, we disagree with the substance of this. You can just sort of impose these very neutral design features that have the effect of preventing the spread of the the most troubling material and probably also making the platform, you know, a little bit more interesting. Like there's a really good case to be made that that users would actually like this stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Earlier this year, over the summer, Facebook, under criticism, released a report about the most viewed things on Facebook because they were, they wanted to push back against uh, the the familiar most engaged pages on Facebook are always like wacky right wing news sources. Wacky is sort of a nice way of putting it. Um, but the funny thing was, the, the, they're like they were like, "Well, that's engagement, but but that's not what people are seeing." But the funny thing was that in this report about what people were seeing, a lot of the top viewed posts were just um, people or pages recycling um, unoriginal memes that get a lot of engagement, like, you know, choose one to get rid of. And it's like Coke, Sprite, Dr. Pepper, or, you know, stuff, or like, what's better, bagels or donuts? And so it's just like, basically, like, meme spam is a great way to get, you know, reshares. And Facebook thought this would make them look good. It made them look dumb because it shows that Sometimes the choices they make in these algorithms, they don't just, you know, make us worry about misinfo or political harm, but they also just kind of make the experience kind of crappy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Switching gears a little bit, what do the employees think about all this? And what are you hearing from people inside of Facebook who are, you know, not the top executives making these big decisions? I think it's, it's kind of a mix. And I should say I'm not the most plugged in reporter to Facebook employees uh, in the world. But well, you just moved to the Bay Area. Yeah, exactly. I'm, oh. I've been in the Bay Area for a month. So back the F off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also, you know, even if you were the most plugged in person, um, you'd probably just say, yeah, I don't know that many people in the company, right? I mean, you have to protect your sources. Exactly. I'm yes. sort of putting That's on a right. front because yeah, uh, I'm working on an expose. But no, you can <laughs> see there's a, like a pretty consistent thing when you, whenever there's a leak or, you know, somebody's internal post gets gets leaked or a meeting with zuck there's a lot of there's always a lot of support for the employee who's criticizing the company um that you know you you don't see what the the pattern when you've got some facebook employee researcher or someone who works in integrity sort of posting internally about we need to do better we have these big problems there's usually a lot of agreement i think in the current crisis there's a mix because, as I said, not all of the revelations are equally damning or probative. My educated guess is that there's a mix of, yeah, it's good that this stuff is coming to light, and hmm, people are kind of misinterpreting some of these findings. Hmm. Well, if you are a Facebook employee and you happen to be listening to this, Galad's DMs are open. 
And if you're a Facebook employee, then you should start beating the drum internally for just reverse chronological all the time, the way that social media was meant to be consumed. <laughs> I want to know what happened six minutes ago, not what happened three and a half days ago. So, I mean, this is worth talking about. So another argument that Francis has made that raised a lot of eyebrows is that a platform like Facebook should just go back to reverse chronological ranking because the the engagement-based ranking algorithm is kind of the root of all evil. Mm -hmm. And people, a lot of people are like, that's crazy. It would just, oh, it makes social media unusable. <laughs> that's what we used for years. <laughs> but right. I mean, Twitter went, Twitter was reverse chronological until mm -hmm. 2015. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can still set it to be reverse chronological, although that. I find that it, I think every time I log out, it sets me back. Yes. I, but yeah. yes. I'm on reverse chronological now and it's totally fine. Like it's it's kind of better because you, you, I don't want everything to be like, it's like I don't want every bite of food to be a Dorito that's just engineered to like overwhelm my senses. I don't want every tweet to be like the tweet I have to look at. Yeah. Um, the idea of Facebook is that you're connecting with people you actually know. What's so crazy about just seeing it in order? Now, what people say is, oh, but then like you'll just see that one person who uses Facebook way too much and it'll be annoying. So one thing that Francis has said is, yeah, you can you can build in anti-spam stuff, right? You could if someone's posting too much, they could condense that and say, uh, Mike Calori posted nine times today. Click to see. So yeah. there's there's ways around that, which um, nobody should ever click on. No, no, don't click on that. <laughs> don't click. It's definitely if you're under eighteen. Um, <laughs> so I'm not. Uh, you know the the. Uh, I, I'm not sitting here making the full-throated case for it, but I don't think it's as crazy as it sounds. The, the 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 thing to keep in mind is that it would not be a solution to all of social media. Like, mm -hmm. if you think about recommender systems more broadly, you know, what would like could YouTube go reverse chronological? Could could Spotify podcast mm -hmm. recommendations go reverse? Okay, can Netflix? No. Mm -hmm. So it's important to keep in mind, it's not gonna be a one size fits all for for every recommender system. Hmm. Or imagine Amazon, if it was like you logged onto Amazon and like the thing that was being recommended to you <laughs> as a product is like the, the I don't know, the really weird wholesale piece of junk that someone just happened to list. <laughs> yeah, which of the, yeah, like what, the which of the billions of products, need. yeah. yeah. All right. That'd uh, be fun. Just buy the most, <laughs> most there's recent a stunt, things. There's a stunt article somehow. <laughs> Thank get, you for that so idea. So get someone to build a reverse chronological Amazon feed <laughs> and then I buy everything. Yeah, I think <laughs> I know a designer What do I own after that. six months? <laughs> Amazon Fire. Help, I'm starving. <laughs> Help, I have no toilet paper. Yeah. All right, let's take a break and then we're going to come back uh, with our recommendations. Glad I'm almost afraid to ask what's your recommendation this week. This is why we brought you on, by the way. Not to talk about Facebook, just for your recommendation. And it's why I accepted. And also to talk about Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so my recommendation, and it's something that Mike and I have talked about before, but I'm, I finally executed on it, is listen to CDs. Yes. So um, like many people, I do have, have for years done most of my music listening via Spotify. And there are some really cool things about that. It's got some very cool discover features. You know, obviously it's super convenient, but I've grown increasingly aware of what I'm losing when that's the way that I listen to music, uh, which is, you know, sometimes when you can choose from anything that's <laughs> overwhelming and yeah. you kind of paradoxically end up going back to the same things more than you otherwise might, sort of how when you have unlimited vacation days, you don't take that as many as you would if you had a fixed amount. And the other thing is that it's just, it's not really designed for people who like having a library of music. 
streaming services, that's not their model. And I miss having that library of music. The leading alternative to listening to Spotify among the cool kids is vinyl records. And I have had a record player for a long time, but I finally got rid of it when I moved out here. And in part because I just never really used it because listening to records is kind of annoying. Wait, you got rid of your vinyl before you moved to the Bay Area? You're doing things yes, I in sold reverse. It. Speaking of reverse chronological order, I mean, <laughs> most people move to the Bay Area and are like, I'm really into records now. Oh, well, I was into it before. It was cool. Oh, okay. um, so, uh, yeah, so I got rid of that. And I realized, like, the thing that I actually valued about the records was less the the sound, you know, anything really inherent to the records other than the cool, the size of the cool covers. Yeah. And it was more the library aspect. So I was like, we know we actually had a technology for this. Like no, it kind of just got wedged in there, but in between listening to records and then everything being streaming, but CDs were kind of handy. So uh, I finally bought, um, I bought a boom box because like my apartment, there's not, there's nowhere really to have a proper stereo system. So I kind of went for the the budget option and got a, a boombox and it's on my piano and I went to the used record store and bought a bunch of $5 CDs and it's delightful. Nice. That's a great recommendation. Thank you for that, Galad. Um, also, thank you for wearing a t-shirt today under the, the button that is unbuttoned. Oh, uh, yeah, to a yeah. Level. Because that, that was an earlier recommendation. That was too hot to handle. Yeah. And we got a lot of angry <laughs> letters from listeners. Did we? Didn't we? Um, well, because we sure. didn't publish a photo with the recommendation. <laughs> I think because all the, it was it was actually from the, a lot of the 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 partners of the men who listened and took the advice and oh yeah, they're oh. aggrieved. They're oh, like, what yeah, have you yeah. done? Yeah, yeah. Say, now they're yeah. wearing cargo shorts and yeah, and deep, <laughs> deeply deep unbuttoned button downs. <laughs> Mike, what is your all recommendation? All he does is slice lemons. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, what's your recommendation? Um, uh, my recommendation is on theme this particular show, uh, I would like to recommend that you go onto the internet and you watch the misinformation segment that was part of the HBO show last week tonight with John Oliver. Uh, it's on Sunday nights and usually they'll, you know, the show will will be on HBO on Sunday night and then the next day they'll take the main segment and put it up on, on YouTube and all the other platforms. So it uh, talks about a lot of the things that, that you talked about, Galad, on this week's show, uh, particularly how... Facebook and the other platforms deal with um, misinformation on chat apps, on private apps that are not public posts. So things like WeChat and WhatsApp that billions of people around the world use and how misinformation gets shared, how it perpetuates. Uh, There's like a generational, uh, usually a generational component. Uh, There's also like a diasporic component. So somebody who is like in India sharing something with their child who lives in the United States. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of like explaining that happens when misinformation gets shared. And a lot of it just gets ignored. And it's really bad. Uh, And the whole segment talks about this. And it also talks about the challenges of combating this misinformation because all of the chats are happening in private. So really interesting and, of course, really funny because John Oliver is kind of a funny guy. So I would recommend that you uh, you watch the segment, the misinformation segment. I'll check that out. I will say that, um, you know, private messaging raises a different set of issues. There are certain, again, content agnostic solutions out there that can address messaging apps. For example, limiting forwarding is yep. a big deal. And that's something that Facebook did in India because f- chain WhatsApp messages mm-hmm. were the source of a lot of viral 
uh, like dangerous viral content that was direct, you know, inciting people to violence. Um, and and the beauty of stuff like that also is it doesn't require you to muck around uh, and look inside people's messages or you know uh, undermine end-to-end -end encrypted apps. Yeah. Um, it, it is worth keeping in mind, though, that there's kind of a limit to, I mean, it would be bizarre for us to freak out and say that the post office really has to do something about people mailing letters that have misinformation or the phone company ha really needs to crack down on people calling each other and saying things that aren't true. So I do think we need to keep in mind that when people are communicating with each other at a certain point, there's a limit to how much the providers of the communications architecture could or should be expected to police what people are saying to each other. Yeah, and pushing too hard also brings up the um, the very tricky subject of encryption and weakening encryption or compromising encryption in some way, which we all understand to be very bad. Right, or pushing people to get improve their OPSEC and yeah. it's like, oh shit, Facebook's cracking down on this. I guess I'll get signal after all. It's like, well, damn it, now we can't, now, yeah. now, now we're really screwed. We can't see what they're doing. Uh, Lauren, what's your recommendation? I have two recommendations this week. One is in honor of Galad, who's going for something. <laughs> I'm always <laughs> just treated so well when I'm fun here. Fun <laughs> and simple. Um, I've been swiping right on dates, which is to say dates. <laughs> oh, like the food. Like the food. <laughs> for eating. They're ah. really good for eating. Yes, I've been on a Medjool date kick. They're delicious. They're high in potassium and fiber and have a low glycemic index. And I've just been, I, I love them. I'm just snacking on them all the time now. What do you do with the pits? Um, I, I put them in compost. Nice. Yeah. What app are you using for the Medjool dates? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a Fruitly? super, super secret okay. date app nice. that I can't, I can't invite only. It's in stealth, yeah. Yeah, it's invite only. Um, but if you have access to dates, <laughs> I highly recommend them. Um, my I'm other recommendation. I'm glad to hear you're back on the scene. <laughs> yeah, back on the date scene. I'm back on the date scene. Uh, the other recommendation I have is uh, the Sway podcast, the New York Times Sway podcast by Kara Swisher. And I'm not just saying that because she's my friend and landlord. I'm saying that because I've listened to a couple episodes recently that are particularly good. She interviewed Monica Lewinsky last week, and they talked a lot about uh, society's collective internalized misogyny around the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And uh, Monica is now working on new projects, including a Hulu series about the impeachment. And um, uh, Beanie Fel Feldstein, I think is how you say her name, is, yep. is playing Monica. And Monica is, is has a hand in the storytelling of this. And uh, it's a really like raw and and brutally honest interview that she does with with Kara Swisher, and uh, it, I think it's really worth listening to. Um, and then I just happened yesterday to listen to Kara's other recent interview with Matthew McConaughey, and who is that a journey? Uh, I don't know if I could like wholeheartedly recommend it, but it's interesting. He's very charismatic at times, downright hilarious. Um, but you know, there there's been reports that he's he's weighing a gubernatorial campaign in the state of Texas. Yeah, and when they got to talking about politics and policy, like, whew, he has some homework to do. Yep. Um, they of course talked about SB eight, and uh, I w I thought his statements around that were weak. And then she asked him about SB one, and he seemed to not know much about it, and uh, that is voting rights. Uh, and so. Uh, all right, all right, all right. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know about that one. <laughs> Sounds but. like he was confused and possibly dazed. <laughs> <laughs>
I think that's a great place to end it. All right. Uh, that's our show for this week. Thank you, Galad, for joining us and giving us that beautiful kicker on our way out. Thanks for having me. And thanks, Mike, as always, for being a great co-host. Of course. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show was produced by the excellent Boone Ashworth. Goodbye for now. We'll be back next week. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life or why China's targeting the U.S. dollar and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh, boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.